Hello, welcome to Hangover Lounge, your destination for podcasts and storytelling from the entertainment industry. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's David Zellerford, co-founder of Hangover Lounge Podcasts, and welcome to our blogcast, XCU The Viewfinder, where we post interviews with screenwriters and directors and talk about the business of getting movies made and other things. In this two-part interview, we speak with actor and screenwriter Robert Bruzio, who has previously been on our blogcast, and his writing and producing partner, Scott Rosenfeld, whose producing credits include Mystic Pizza, Home Alone, and Teen Wolf, among a zillion other films. Hangover Lounge co-founder and director Raymond DiFolita and our contributor and comms director Lauren Taglianti join us for this conversation between Brooklyn, the Bronx, Long Island, Connecticut, and Philippines, where we find Scott in pre-production on his latest movie. Raymond? Hey, guys. Hey, Scott. How are you? Well, it's 10 o'clock at night where I am. I'm doing fine. Well, it's 10 o'clock at night where I am mentally. So, uh, <laughs> I know. You kind of look that way. <laughs> I mean, just rolled out of bed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So good. Well, I don't know if it'll be a good look that everybody thinks it's nine in the morning, but I'm drinking wine because it's 10 o'clock at night for me. I'll, I'll join you. Just yeah, I think I'll join you minutes. as well. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Well, so David, you, you, I think you, I think I heard you kind of briefing everyone. So let's just have fun. Laura, do you want to start something? So I do have one question. A lot of my friends are still obsessed with Home Alone and all of them, including myself, were born well after 1990. And Teen Wolf is now known in my generation as a show that all of my friends' little siblings are obsessed with. And then The Californians is also an incredibly successful <laughs> skit on SNL. So oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so considering that your work is timeless and is a precedent for so many other cultural phenomena in the industry, how does producing such timeless and influential projects as an independent producer impact the industry? I will tell you, you know, during this holiday season, I keep seeing things pop up on my phone, not just for me, but for everybody in news feeds and things about holiday movies. And it's a funny feeling because, you know, the truth is when you do your work, you don't ever plan it. You don't plan any of that. And, and if you do your work well and it happens, it's because you know what you're doing and, and you've gotten people to work together and make something special, whatever it is. And so I, I sometimes I'm sometimes feel outside myself when I see it, like, oh, that's cool. Oh, wow. There's always publicity about certain kinds of things and that don't really deserve it. And then there's other stuff that doesn't get enough of that. And when you realize you're sort of part of film language in a sense, I mean, it's a, honestly, it's a great feeling. I mean, Teen Wolf became iconic. You know, people talk about it. Obviously, the TV show came up, and that was a different generation. And some of those people aren't even really as aware of the movie, per se. But it was amazing for the time. And Home Alone was special, obviously. They're, they're remaking it, which I think everybody who's involved in it has mixed feelings about. I just question the validity of remaking an entire franchise after it was made once, more than one movie. So uh, I just think it's a little weird, but it's usually studio lack of imagination. I mean, the idea that they had nothing else that they could make, right? We all pitch movies every day and we all have things we want to make. And these guys are sitting there going, hmm, uh, how about, hmm, uh, gee, I don't know. How about we just remake Home Alone? I, I, I think it's a little odd, honestly. But at the same time, it's nice to know they're, they're, they're repeating something you did, you know? When we were doing The Californians, I really enjoyed working with Noah Wiley. Noah was great, and Keith Carradine was in it, and 
Jesus Christ, there were a bunch of other people that I'm forgetting that really interesting people were in the movie, Kate Mara and a few others. But, you know, at the time, Noah and I talked a lot. And I remember saying to him, I think you should direct. You know, I just sent him a script about a week ago to see if he wanted to direct it. Can I pick up on that whole remake thing that, that we were you were just talking about? It, it is kind of amazing how quickly movies become uh, eligible for remake if they were successful. Home Alone has actually um, been spared for quite some time. That movie's about 30 years old by now, right? Yeah. The thing that I've always wondered is, does it make you feel like your work is potentially being erased? Like it's just being given a whole new thing and what you've done becomes merely the basis of something. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. At at first, you think, oh, it's an honor, right? They want to remake your work. But then you find out that the people that are remaking it have no idea what you did. They don't call you. They don't seem interested in asking you anything. Like, you made this movie and you were involved in it. We've seen documentaries with your face and interviewed. Maybe it'd be just nice to ask you about it. Nobody ever does it. It does feel like people have short memories. To Raymond's point about being concerned about a film being remade and then being the original version being erased, I don't think there's any fear with Home Alone. I think it just ranks up there in the in iconic stage. And I guess there's levels of iconic movies but when it comes to Christmas movies, it's way up there. In, in, oh, yeah. In the I, I think so. I, it's, it's, it's up there in my book with, uh, you know, Christmas Vacation and It's a Wonderful Life. Which they're talking about remaking. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I, I don't know if it'll succeed. I don't know. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's, it's like I think it'll fall into the category. Yeah. But it's like when they remade Psycho. Oh, yeah. How, how do you remake certain movies? Yeah, I thought that was, that was weird. Not only that, at the time... And I do respect Gus Van Zandt as a filmmaker, but his choice, if I remember correctly, to copy every shot of the original movie was like, boy, that's, why didn't I think of that? How about phoning it in, making a movie, getting paid a lot of money and, and just doing every shot from the original movie. Wow. I remember thinking, I, I think I worked too hard. Yes. You know, I mean, and there might be some interesting way to say, is there another version of Psycho from a completely different point of view? You know, is it like, is it his mother in the basement? And is, I don't know. There, it'd be funny to try to spin a reason to remake Psycho. It was more of a replication than a, than a remake, yeah. really. And the weird thing about that, as long as we're off on this tangent, that <laughs> I found is that Van Sant is one of, like, really the great filmmakers. He's like a yeah. serious, yeah. you know, visionary director. So perversity on his part or just laziness or I don't know what it is but it was it was a for me an infuriating choice nobody wanted to tell him it was not not a great idea there is an art to producing and there is an art to producing and working with a director and helping the director make make a better movie that doesn't mean a director isn't a good director for god's sakes so you know I don't know. I, I just think people should respect that relationship more too, which is something I've gone back and forth on throughout my career because I've also directed a little and I write. So I see all sides of it. But in terms of, of writing, I think, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about how, you know, not only being such a wonderful and supportive producer that you are and successful producer, but also uh, the writer that you are. And, and I guess we could talk a little bit about how, you know, yeah. we've also been working together. Yeah, of course. I mean, from my perspective, you know, it's great to work with a producer who's also a writer because, you know, many times a producer may look at it and say, well, how are we going to do this? And how are we going to do that? And how is that possible? And, and you kind of fear those limitations where, you know, working with Scott, um, we weren't even... You know, it would come up occasionally, like, okay, how do we do this? And 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 as from a producer's standpoint, how would certain scenes get done? 
but there weren't any limitations. It was just, you know, let, let's be creative. Let's get it down. Let's come up with yeah. the best ideas that we can. My own progression as a writer, not just as a producer, is I learned about the story. I researched the story. I got to know the participants, the ones who are alive, essentially, family members. I also, in an interesting way, got too close to them, which can happen, so that my draft of the script, although sort of you know, technically in decent shape, was missing something, which I recognized. I didn't need anybody else to tell me. Uh, I was able to, after I wrote it, even though I felt good about finally getting this story down on paper, which I've wanted to do for years, I was able to step back and look at it and feel like, mm, something, just something's missing, right? And, and I knew I wanted somebody else to look at it and reshape it. You know, Robert and I had started a relationship based on another project that just didn't happen. And I thought of him for this. He jumped in and, you know, looked at the research material, looked at the draft and came up, re-outlined it and came up with a, a different structure. And, and it was spot on for me. It was spot on. And then he dug in and went to work on it. And for me, I seemed to be able to switch heads, you know, and move back and forth between thinking like a producer and thinking like a writer. And when I handed it off to Robert, you know, I had no fear of like, you know, like saying, now don't fuck up my screenplay, you know, or I'll kill you, you know. When we were first working, one of the concerns was because you were so close to the actual people. So I wasn't afraid to offend anybody. <laughs> when you know the people personally, you, you might shy away from digging a little, mm -hmm. but it was there. I mean, everything that I think you touched upon everything on the characters, his arc and, and what was going on. It's just maybe I was a little less afraid. Could you give us some background on the project so I, 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 I can understand more about who you're talking about? The story is about a guy named Paul Skinny D'Amato. Skinny D'Amato ran one of the most successful nightclubs in the history of the United States from the late 40s through 1972 when the club burned down in Atlantic City, which had been during that time pre-gambling, the playground of the rich and famous, a playground for families too, because it was a beach community. It had illicit gambling, you know, entertainment. There were clubs like the 500 Club, which is Skinny's Club. There was Club Harlem and all these great, amazing clubs where, where major jazz acts, Sammy Davis Jr., you know, in the 500 Club, which Skinny owned, was the place where Skinny put Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis together on stage for the first time. And that's what it was known for. So all those guys hung out there. Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and Skinny were the closest friends. Frank Sinatra ended up being a pallbearer at Skinny's funeral in 1984. And what Skinny was, just to also put it in perspective, besides being present during some extraordinary events during American history, including events surrounding the Kennedys and, and Marilyn Monroe and Kennedy's assassination and some other stuff, Skinny basically was the guy that the Rat Pack wanted to be. Frank, Dean, Peter Lawford, uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, they all emulated this guy. And nobody knows this except for people who have heard of Skinny D'Amato. And people in Atlantic City know it, but a lot of people don't know this. He he ran the nightclub. He was the guy they wanted to be. The way he, he went to bed at six o'clock in the morning and woke up at noon in a smoking jacket and, you know, sat around and had breakfast, at, you know, with Frank Sinatra at five in the morning and, and then went to the club and came back for dinner with his family, but then went back to the club and he taught them how to hold a cigarette and how to hold a highball glass and other things. And they all 
wanted to be skinny. And people don't know this. They, and and when I, even when I say it sometimes, they go, oh, no, you're ma- come on, you're making that up. If any of those guys were alive, they would tell you they were, they, even Frank. Frank learned all his moves about being around even women and other stuff from this guy. So he's like the guy behind the Rat Pack. Who were the people that you were, when you're talking about uh, who were close to the situation, I'm, I'm dying to know. Who were the D'Amato's out there you guys are working with? Mostly his daughter, Paula Jane, who's a wonderful person who lives in Atlantic City in Florida. And mostly Paula Jane, a little bit of Skinny, Skinny's brother worked at the club and his brother's son is an attorney, Paul who's named Paul as well, uh, is an attorney. And Paul, a, a bunch of people who are still alive, who I was able to interview in their 80s and family members of people who died already. But Paula Jane was the major one because she was there. There are pictures of her. If you go online and you look up the 500 Club, thousands of videos right. and pictures. And, and you'll see Paula Jane, like Dean Martin, kissing her when she was six years old and, and her sitting on Frank Sinatra's lap and all that stuff. You know, I grew up going to Atlantic City as a kid because my grandparents lived there. So I knew about this whole thing. And, and everybody used to say to me, my brother's the one that said to me, who's not in the film business, man, you got, you got to make a movie about this guy, you know? And, and I just thought about it for years. Hey, we'll pick up with part two of our broadcast interview with the screenwriting team of Robert Bruzio and Scott Rosenfeld right here in no time. Thank you for joining us for the Hangover Lounge broadcast, XCU, The Viewfinder, where we discuss screenwriting, filmmaking, audio storytelling, and offer different perspectives on entertainment and all things showbiz related. If you'd like to join our mailing list or be a guest or contributor on our blogcast and share your point of view with our community, please reach out to us through our website at hangoverloungepodcast.com and send us a message. And please check us out regularly for upcoming interviews with screenwriters, filmmakers, and industry insiders on our blogcast right here. We hope you've enjoyed your time here and will join us for more podcasts and storytelling. Until then, thank you for listening.